You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Um, you guys feeling tired this morning? Okay. I, I've, uh, I've met a few people who have uh, said they're a little tired this morning, but uh, funny enough, did you know that prior to the invention of the light bulb in 1879 by Thomas Edison, the average person actually slept 11 hours a night? Well, that's crazy, eh? Like, mind-boggling. Um, now, the average American sleeps seven hours a night. Uh, sounds about right, doesn't it? We live in a part of the world that can be characterized by busyness, hustle, and anxiety. We wear workaholism as a badge of honor, uh, where efficiency and productivity are signs of being a high-capacity person. Now, what else? In the 1960s, there were key thinkers that believed that in the future, we would be working a lot less because of how quickly technology was developing. There was even uh, a Senate subcommittee in 1967 that theorized that by the year 1985, the average American would spend 22 hours a week working, 27 weeks out of the year. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> so what happened then? Because like, we're all feeling overworked, aren't we? Well, technology continued to improve, and that allowed us to accomplish more in less time but now we're working almost four weeks more than we did in 1979. So in this 40-year span, what happened? Well, what happened is we traded time for money. And the result is that we feel hurried, restless, angry, anxious, depressed, and burnt out with little, if any, time left over for our loved ones, for anything else, and including Jesus. Now, John Ortberg says this about the hurry culture we live in. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. So does this describe you today? Are you anxious and restless? Are you burning the wick at both ends, finding that you have little margin left in your life? Are you struggling to hear God's voice? I gently want to encourage you to just zoom out for a moment and think about what you want to be remembered for. Uh, pastor Sam, lead pastor of our church, he led our staff through this exercise where we had to picture our own funeral on that day when we, you know, our, our, all our loved ones are gathered, they're remembering us. Who's reading your eulogy? And what are they saying about you? What was your life primar primarily characterized by? Was it work, money, and achievements? Or being a person of love, humility, and one whose life reflected the character of Christ? It really forces you to think about what's important in life, doesn't it? Now, you don't become a person like that just by accident. And so if we want to become like Christ, we must adopt the lifestyle of Christ himself. So to that end, I want to take a look at two practices this morning from the life of Jesus that can help. We've been in a series called A New Humanity, taking a look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today we find ourselves in Matthew uh, 6, 5 to 18, as Deanna just read. And we're skipping over Matthew 6, 1 to 4 on giving to the needy. Not because it's unimportant, uh, but because Pastor Sonia is preaching that message this morning at Mariner and Rail City, and next week she's going to be here preaching that text uh, to you. So we just had uh, Matthew 6, 5 to 18 read out, and 
if you're paying attention, prayer and fasting are these two central practices um, in a life of discipleship to Jesus that I want to unpack this morning. So I feel like this could honestly be like two separate sermons, like one on prayer and one on fasting, but this morning it's just one, like that's, that's the straw that I drew. Um, but you know, I'm just going to be scratching the surface and I'm glad that Town Center is used to sermons that are slightly longer. Um, so I'm going to do the best I can to answer three questions. One, number one, why do we pray and fast? Number two, what happens when we pray and fast? And thirdly, how do we pray and fast? So, just a warning up front, we're not going to get into the meat of the Lord's Prayer until the end, because it deals with the how to pray, not as much as the why and the what. So, if you're wondering, why isn't this guy getting to, like, the Lord's Prayer, it's coming, all right? So, if we back up to Matthew 6, verse 1, we're going to see that the opening line of Jesus' words about giving to the needy is also relevant context for our passage today. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus carries this principle forward when he begins speaking about prayer in uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he also talks about this with reference to fasting, if you check out verse 16. So same principle. Now, is Jesus saying that we should never pray in public? Well, if that were true, then the prayers that we had this morning, like those would be a no-no, right? Uh, So no, that's not the case. What he's doing is he's calling out the Pharisees for putting on public displays of prayer for the purpose of being seen as holy and righteous before others. So there would be scheduled times of prayer for Jews in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. And if you were in the streets at these times, what you were supposed to do is you were supposed to stop, face the temple, and pray. And so what the Pharisees would do is these were sneaky guys, right? They would time it. They'd be like, okay, like afternoon prayer is coming up at 3 o'clock. What time is it? 2.55. Let's get out and be in like, you know, um, Times Square or whatever. And, and, and so people could see them in their devotion praying to the Lord. And so this was spiritual pride. And if you know the Jesus of the Bible, you know that he absolutely hates spiritual pride. And what does Jesus say about them? He says they have received their reward in full. Now, at first glance, it sounds like Jesus is condoning their behavior, but he's not. What he's actually saying is that they will have no reward from God. Instead, they receive the affirmation of people, and that's all they will get. And Jesus says the same thing about fasting, that they have received their vain reward. He calls the Pharisees out for disfiguring their faces to be seen by others when they fast. And I don't know what it looks like to disfigure their faces, if they're like making monkey faces or I don't know, but like use your imagination. Somehow their faces were depicting to others that they were fasting. Um, So to begin answering our question, why do we pray and fast? It's not to gain the approval of others, and it's not for our own glory. Jesus is saying that our prayer life is a matter of the heart, that our motives in prayer and fasting matter. The question is, are we praying to an audience of one, regardless of whether we're in our room alone or if we're in the middle of the city square? 
Because when we start thinking about who's watching and listening to our prayers, we're missing the point because we've shifted our gaze off of God and onto ourselves. Here's what Jesus says next. It's both challenging and comforting in verse 7 and 8. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So the pagan Gentiles, they would use long lists of divine names as they prayed, hoping that through this mindless repetition, they would correctly pronounce the name of a God who would then grant their request. And so in this way, they could manipulate the gods into giving them what they asked for. <clears throat> so against this, Jesus says, your heavenly father already knows what you need. Now, this isn't meant to discourage us from asking, since he already knows, but it's to prevent us from thinking that we can or need to manipulate God in prayer. We don't need to throw in eloquent language or pray long prayers for God to hear us. We also shouldn't be dressing up our prayers just to sound good in front of others. Our prayers don't need to sound pretty. They just need to be simple and honest. Now, isn't that relieving, right? That like the voice that God's given us, the personality he's given us, the way that we communicate with others, like we can communicate with him in that way. Um, we don't have to perform for God. We're just having a conversation with him like we would another person. He's relational. He made us. And we were designed to commune with him. And this is one of the reasons why we pray and fast for intimacy with God. The Lord's Prayer opens by encouraging us to address God as Father, a loving, good, kind, compassionate Father who deeply cares for us. Prayer and fasting are invitations to intimacy with the triune God. In prayer, we can bear our souls before the one who knows us better than we even know ourselves, the one who delights in us and calls us precious sons and daughters of the Most High. It's the same with fasting. You may think of fasting as praying with your body. When we fast, which also, by the way, by definition, um, is fasting from food, and scripturally, that's what we see. It's not from Netflix or social media, although that's a good thing to do. That would be called abstinence. Fasting, true fasting, is fasting from food. When we fast, we commune with God. And Jesus shows this when he is asked in Matthew 9 why his disciples don't fast like the Pharisees and John's disciples. He replies this, he says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so the New Testament, uh, if you're not familiar with this, this language, portrays the relationship between Christ and the church as a marriage, where the church is likened to a bride, and, and Christ is the bridegroom. So with this context in mind, Jesus is saying that his disciples didn't need to fast while he was with them in the flesh. Why? Because he was near. He was in their midst. They had intimacy with him. But the time would come when Jesus would ascend to the Father, and at that time, Jesus expected that his followers would fast as they long for his presence, for intimacy with him, just as a bride misses her bridegroom from afar. Now, how exactly does that all work? 
Well, when we fast, we sacrifice food to allow God to be our portion. Fasting rids us of something that we depend on to live and function so we would instead depend on God. It brings us to a place of weakness. In fact, if we look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think we've got like the the pyramid up here um, on the slide. Boom, right at the bottom, physiological needs, right? So what do you need to survive as a human being? Like before you get to all the stuff at the top, at a base level, one of the things you need is food. <laughs> and, and by fasting, we're, we're sacrificing that. But it's not actually to sacrifice for less. It's actually to sacrifice for the sake of more. That you, 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 you have greater intimacy with God as you fast. And you invite him into that. And you allow him to be your portion. And so when we abstain from food, we're going to get pretty desperate and pretty weak. Um, you know, if you, if you go through with your fast, you're physically going to be weak. If you end your fast early, you're going to realize you're maybe not as mentally or spiritually strong as you might think. And so in that desperation, we recognize our need for God, that Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies. Now, although fasting is a bodily discipline, it affects the soul. The echo of your soul when you fast sounds something like Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In fasting, we also remember that God is provider. Like, let me tell you, I pray with greater gratitude when I sit down to eat dinner after a fast, knowing that food is a gift from God. You surely become grateful for his provision of food when you fast. And so prayer and fasting, there are pathways to intimacy with God. But we often wait until we have intimacy with God before we obey him, don't we? But it's the opposite way around. That obedience, part of Christianity is that obedience is what actually leads to intimacy with God. So what do I mean? Well, Jesus assumed that his followers would fast. If you, if you look in our text, Jesus says, when you fast, not if, like he's assuming that his followers fast. But for many of us, we don't pray and fast for a number of reasons. And I could, I could go into like a huge long list, but just to like uh, hit a few of them, we don't pray and fast because we're too busy, as we talked about at the beginning. We don't pray and fast because it feels boring. You know, we'd rather do anything else. We don't pray and fast because we're afraid of intimacy with God, even though we know we need it and want it. Or we don't know where to start. Uh, More on this later when we get to uh, the how. Or perhaps most significantly, we're cynical. Either we don't believe that prayer and fasting really changes anything, or we've been disappointed and we've experienced deep pain because of our, our most heartfelt prayers weren't answered. Now, if this has been your experience, before I go any further, I want you to know that God has so much compassion and love for you. Like, unanswered prayer is real. Disappointment is real. And when it feels like God has let us down, it's hard to turn back to him, isn't it? Now, while I don't have the answer for why God didn't answer your most desperate prayer, 
I do know these two things. Number one, Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Like he knows pain, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And even the first part of his prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't answered. Father, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. We know he later prayed, nonetheless, not my will be done, but yours. But the first part of this prayer, he's saying to the Father, if there's another way, I'll take it. This prayer was an answer. And two, we worship the God of all comfort according to 2 Corinthians 1. There's a mystery to prayer and not every prayer will be answered in the way that we hope. But a promise of scripture is that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. This is James 4.8. If you let him in, he'll comfort you and bring healing to your wounded heart. We can take comfort in knowing that it's by Jesus' wounds that we are healed, that we worship a wounded healer who can identify with us in our pain. So having said all this, I now want to inspire you to pray and fast by telling you what can happen when we do. So what happens when we pray and fast? Well, as I said, there is a mystery to prayer and fasting. It isn't a magic bullet or a formula to manipulate God, but we cannot escape the scriptural reality that when we couple prayer with fasting, there's a potency, there's a power that accesses heaven and touches earth. Now allow me to point you to some passages and testimonies of the people of God over the course of history that demonstrate when we pray and fast, God responds. Breakthrough happens that could not otherwise be had. In Judges 20, Yahweh turns the tables for the people of Israel as they're engaged in battle with the tribe of Benjamin after a night of weeping, sacrifice, and fasting, and he delivers them into their hands. In 1 Samuel 7, we see Israel repent, turn toward God, and fast. The next day, they defeat the Philistines. While in exile, after hearing of the destroyed state of Jerusalem, Nehemiah prays and fasts, repents on behalf of Israel, and asks the Lord for favor from King Artaxerxes. He's then granted permission by this king to return to Jerusalem to begin building the city walls. How about the New Testament? In Mark 9, Jesus tells his disciples that some demons only come out by prayer and fasting. The scriptures are littered with prayer and fasting and God responding. Now, how about some examples from the last century? There's a man named Jonathan Tremaine Thomas. Uh, He's a pastor from Missouri, and he's a founder of uh, an organization called Civil Righteousness, and they do like biblical justice. And what they they do is they'll research the history of a community. So for him in Missouri, you know, might be St. Louis, they'll research the history of a community, identify the pain points and places where tragic defining things took place. And then they'll go and pray at those locations, repent, take communion. And they've seen cities change. Hostilities break between people groups. So he tells this story of uh, there's a particular hotel in St. Louis on one of the most violent uh, streets in the country and like one of the murder capitals of the states. Um, And there's this hotel where sex trafficking would take place and prostitution would take place. And a group of them would go and pray every Saturday morning for two months. 
felt that the, the Holy Spirit just kept prompting them to go back each Saturday. They kept doing this for three months, and in, in the third month, there were bulldozers, bulldozers that were bulldozing over the hotel. Isn't that amazing? Like God responds to prayer and fasting. Another story, Cali, Colombia, 1991. Uh, the drug cartel controlled the country at the time. It was the richest and most well-run criminal organization in history at the time. There were kidnappings, tortures, homicides happening daily. Uh, up to 15 murders a day were happening. Uh, Colombia was the world's largest exporter of cocaine at the time. And what did the church look like in Cali, Colombia? There were 50,000 Christians in a population of 2 million. And the church wasn't exactly unified. And in March of 1995, there was an all-night prayer meeting that was held in the Cali Coliseum. They were expecting about 2,000 people to show up, but 25,000 people showed up to pray. That's like half, half the Christians in the city. Now, 48 hours after this event, for the first time in as long as anyone could remember, the newspaper read, no homicides. Shortly thereafter, the first drug lord fell, followed by the following six. 900 cartel-linked police officers were fired from the force. Eventually, the cartels moved away and the, the economy was restored. In subsequent prayer events, People were getting up out of their wheelchairs and walking. Deaf people began to hear, and others dropped their canes. Thousands of people were coming to Christ. Not only this, but even the fruit in their fields and in their land was growing three to four times the size as it had been. God responded to the corporate prayers of his people, reversed the homicide rate, brought healing to others, blessed the land, and in the process united the Colombian church. This is what prayer and fasting can do. And this is what Isaiah speaks of. He says, this is God speaking through Isaiah, is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? So why is it that the, the practice of fasting has virtually disappeared from the Western church? Did you know that in the early church, Christians fasted twice a week until sundown? They would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays in remembrance of Jesus' betrayal on the Wednesday and crucifixion on the Friday. And it also set them apart from Pharisees who fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And so for nearly all of church history, this is just what Christians did. If you look beyond the Western church, you'll see a church that fasts. The persecuted church fasts. The church surrounded by injustice fasts. The church that faces demonic oppression head-on fasts. North America is one of the few places on the planet that has largely abandoned this ancient practice of discipleship to Jesus. Now, is it such a mystery that the North American church is so often seen by the rest of the world as busy, exhausted, and with so little power? We struggle to sacrifice and give things up because we swim against the tide of radical individualism and comfort. And this is why the general attitude toward fasting sounds something like, well, it's all well and good, but it's not for me. Well, if you're feeling dry in your walk with God, if you're not hearing his voice, have you prayed and fasted? If you're facing a big decision and you're still not sure which way to go, have you prayed and fasted? 
If there's a wall that you keep running into in your life, whether it's a sin, a difficult relationship, maybe it's holding on to control, have you prayed and fasted? Side note, if you're struggling with pornography or sexual sin, fasting is one of the best things that you can do. Why? Because you learn to discipline the desires of the flesh. In our age of instant gratification, you train yourself not to always give in to what your body craves. Fasting teaches us self-control and not to give in to every urge we feel. And it is discipline that brings freedom. So I want us to see fasting not as an optional side dish to our discipleship, but as a central practice that we can't live without. Prayer coupled with fasting forms us, deepens our intimacy with God, helps us better hear his voice, and leads to breakthrough. We see that Jesus fasted, the early church fasted, the global church has fasted for basically all of history, our brothers and sisters across the world fast, and Jesus expects that we will fast, just as he expects that we'll give to the needy and pray. It's right in the context of the passage here. The same Jesus who preached the Sermon on the Mount is the same Jesus speaking to us today. And this is an area that I've been convicted in and total transparency, like I'm pretty new to this myself. Um, But I know that one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to teach sound doctrine and help the sheep follow the good shepherd. And I think this is an area where our orthopraxy has to meet our orthodoxy. We have to practice what we preach or what we hear Jesus preach. And I believe that God is shining a light on this neglected spiritual discipline and calling his church back to prayer and fasting. And why? Well, have you seen the state of the church in the West? We've all seen the attempts of church to be more relevant, flashier, attractive in efforts to reach more people, but these methods are not working. There's a haunting quote that I heard by David Kinneman, who's the president of the Barna Group. They're basically a Christian think tank on statistics. He was saying that, The church is in a state of irreversible decline and that bar a genuine move of God and radical discipleship, statistically we've lost the church. We can't get it back by human means. The hour is now for the church to start praying and fasting. It's time to head to the prayer closet. It's time to gather as the body of Christ and ask God to do what only he can do because our feeble attempts are not working. Not only is the church in a desperate spot, so too is our city. Just look at the loneliness, the mental health crisis, the, de- um, the denigration of the body, the void of purpose that we see. Our city is in desperate need of Jesus. And I love how Tyler Staten puts it. He says, every great move of God in church history, every revival and awakening follows a common pattern. The church catches fire, leading to an increased priority in prayer, resulting in an outpouring of the Spirit on a city. Do you long for that in our city? I do. Maybe you're wondering, okay, how do I pray and fast? Well, you're in good company because even the disciples wondered that too. In Luke 11.1, one one of Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, what's interesting is that the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them how to preach, how to plant churches, how to lead, but they ask him, teach us to pray. The disciples would see Jesus pray, teach on prayer. 
In fact, there's approximately 175 verses where Jesus is either praying or teaching on prayer in the scriptures. And this is one of them. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his followers how to pray. And while this is a model and a template to follow, I would encourage you to recite this prayer verbatim, often, the way it is. Like sometimes we can be afraid of formal liturgical prayers lest they become rote and mechanical. But again, prayer is a matter of the heart. Like the literal Greek translation before Jesus lays out this prayer is, whenever you pray, recite this. So this prayer has been recited throughout church history and it has the power to form us and to shape us if it isn't done mindlessly. Now what's interesting is that in this prayer, we get a front row seat to see how God the Son communicates with God the Father through the Spirit. The Trinity is communicating here in prayer. And so right off the bat, you should notice that in this prayer, there are you petitions toward God and we petitions toward one another. That prayer is meant to be both vertical, praying for God's glory, and horizontal, blessing others. Scott McKnight says it this way. He says, those who love God yearn for his name to be sanctified, his kingdom to come, and his will to be done. Those who love others yearn for their daily bread, their reciprocal forgiveness, their growth in holiness, and their deliverance from the evil one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go like line by line through the Lord's Prayer and just give you like a few thoughts. It's, going to, it's kind of going to be like a sprinkler, like, you know, the and then I'm going to go back to the next one, all right? So here we go. Um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is a way of praying adoration and praise. Our Father, um, Father is Abba in Aramaic. This was an intimate, affectionate term that children would call their fathers by. We are adopted children of God who can call him dad. Prayer is deeply relational. And did you know that all of Jesus' prayers began with father except his cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read it this week. Who knew? It's out of our intimacy with the father that we pray. But we begin not with our own needs or those of others, but with God's glory and honor. Remember, prayer and fasting isn't about our glory, as the Pharisees made it. And so what does it actually mean to hallow God's name? It means to honor it, to sanctify it, to set it apart, to treat it with respect, to lift high God's name. In essence, we start by asking the Father to glorify his own name. Now, God reveals himself in the Old Testament as Yahweh or Jehovah. I am who I am, the self-existent one. Now, Jews revered this name to the point that they wouldn't even pronounce it lest they take God's name in vain. Now, I think they took it too far, but hey, they had reverence. Now, God also reveals himself in the Old Testament under these names, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord our shepherd. Jehovah Tzedekinu, the Lord our righteousness, and Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present. And so to pray that God's name be hallowed is to pray that the whole world might come to know God like that. And according to Psalm 34.3, we can magnify the Lord and exalt his name. We do this through living godly lives, by boasting in the Lord and not ourselves, by praising God for who he is and what he has done. 
I often start my prayers just by thanking God for who he is, right? Thank you that you're merciful, you're just, you're loving, you're good, you're sovereign, you're healer. We begin prayer with adoration and lifting high God's name. Next, we've got your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where we intercede. This is where we contend. Intercession. So it's interesting that this line assumes that the Father's will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven, at least not in full. This is kind of the already not yet theology, right? Where the kingdom is breaking in, but not in all of its fullness quite yet. So in this line, we're encouraged to partner with God in prayer. We're encouraged to intercede and ask God to intervene and bring his shalom in this hurting world. This is where those who mourn over the broken state of the world turn their mourning into prayer and contend for God to act. This is where we pray to win, much like in the story of uh, Jonathan Tremaine Thomas or Cali Columbia. It may not be for entire nations or regions. It could also be just asking for God to intervene in someone's life, to heal someone, or to bring reconciliation in broken relationships. Next, we have give us this day our daily bread. This is petition. And so this is where you ask God to provide for your needs. Now, sometimes we're afraid to ask, but James, Jesus' brother, tells us you do not have because you do not ask. At a very basic fundamental level, much of prayer is about asking. And there seems to be a mystery that the more we ask, the more God responds. We need not be sheepish with our good father, but we're encouraged to ask him who knows how to give good gifts to his children. So what do you need? Is it strength, peace, joy? Is it food, money, concentration for your car to start? Ask. And on this note, we should pray with such specificity that we can know with certainty whether our prayer was answered or not. The risk is disappointment, but sometimes we pray so generally that we're not even sure if our like, prayers are being answered. So pray specifically. Next we have, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is confession, right? This is where we confess our sins to God, knowing that he's already paid our debt in full and knowing we can't hide anything from the God who knows all. Through our confession, we realize our daily need for grace and our dependence on the spirit of God to live lives pleasing to him. And knowing that we've been forgiven for the immense debt of sin against God, we also forgive others for the ways that they've sinned against us. We cancel their debts and set them free. We forsake bitterness, grudges, and hostility and release our offenders into the care of our Father and pray blessing over them. Now, this is easier said than done, yet we know at the core of our being that to be a Christian is to be one who forgives. They're synonymous. And this is so important that Jesus even qualifies it further in verse 14 and 15. You can take a look there. Forgiveness isn't optional for a follower of Christ. And finally, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is spiritual warfare. We pray that God would protect us and rescue us from situations where we will be tempted by the evil one, for God never tempts us. And so we, we pray that we'd be rescued from these situations where the, the evil one would, would tempt us to sin against our loving Father. And when we are tempted, 
we pray that we would be delivered out of it, that we would recognize the way out and walk in it. As the Apostle Paul records in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We're in a spiritual battle. Talked about this last time I was speaking here two weeks ago. And we must be on guard against the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy all that God is doing in your life. And so I would highly recommend memorizing Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 on putting on the armor of God as you pray into this theme as well. Now, we're getting to the end here, 36 minutes in. Few practical tips on prayer and fasting, all right? So Christianity is not simply a faith consisting of teaching and knowledge, but it's a faith that is learned through practice. Prayer and fasting are things that we learn by doing. So my first tip is this, start small. Um, Start praying and the Holy Spirit will teach you. Pray until you can. Sometimes it's helpful to use a journal if you're not sure what to pray for. Keep a list of prayer requests uh, that others have, your own petitions, things you're grateful for, things you need to confess. With fasting, if you haven't done it before, I'd recommend starting by fasting one meal a week and only drinking water and then using that time in between meals to pray throughout the day. Now, if you've fasted before and you want to make it a regular rhythm, I'd suggest a weekly day of fasting from after dinner one night through to dinner the next night. Now, there's a bit of a caution. If you have an unhealthy relationship with food, particularly if you struggle with an eating disorder, you probably shouldn't engage with fasting just yet until there's been redemption and and healing in this area of your life. Um, If you want to learn more about this, I've actually got a podcast you can scan the QR code to. Um, QR codes are all the rage these days, so you can just pull out your phone. Uh, This is a psychologist, Christian psychologist, Dr. Allison Cook. She speaks on fasting and how that's related to to eating disorders and that, so definitely worth a listen. Um, Also, if you are diabetic or uh, have low blood sugar levels, you're an expectant mother or a nursing mother, or you have heart issues, you should probably avoid fasting too. Um, Number two, tip number two is pray and fast in community. So much easier to go to the gym when you have a partner. Um, I don't go to the gym. The only time I'll go to the gym is if someone else is going. Uh, In the same way, when we're developing our spiritual muscles, knowing that you're doing it with others helps so much. Now, on this note, if you're tracking along with the sermon series in your community groups, there's discussion guides that go up on the website each week. You can just go to the media page, Um, we put practices in there. So we're going to do that tomorrow on how can you fast as a community group? What might that look like? Number three, drink water, lots of it. It's important to be hydrated when you're not eating food. Uh, You're going to get a lot more thirsty. Enough said. Number four, uh, expect the body to push back. So if you're fasting, you're going to feel some hunger pains, but don't worry, you're not starving. Um, It's just the way that your stomach has been conditioned to signal that you normally eat at certain times. So keep pushing through. Uh, If you fast for longer periods, for instance, beyond 36 hours, it's going to be harder. Uh, The first three days are the hardest in terms of physical discomfort and hunger pangs. Uh, But this is the body ridding itself of toxic poisons that have accumulated after years of poor eating habits. Isn't it crazy how like fasting is actually good for the body too? Like it's almost like Jesus knew what he was talking about, right? Um, And like he designed the body. Um, 
philosophers used to fast for more alertness, and this is actually what can happen too, is by day six or seven, if you fast that long, you're going to feel stronger, more alert, and focused. Your hunger pains will diminish. But in those first few days, you're going to experience he uh, headaches, weakness, occasional dizziness. So move slower. Don't go to the gym. Um, don't do tons of exercise. Take time to rest. You're also going to feel uh, more prone to being cold since your metabolism isn't producing the same amount of heat it's used to. Uh, so wear a sweater. Um, maybe not in the summer, but you know what I'm talking about. Also, don't stock up before you fast for long periods. You know, like don't have like the grand slam or whatever uh, before you before you fast. Eat actually slightly less before you begin your fast. And then when you're coming out of your fast, start small again because the stomach has shrunken and prioritize fruits and veggies. Number five, finally, remember why you pray and fast. Fasting isn't just about not eating food, right? It's for the purpose of worship, prayer, communion with God, um, while you abstain from food. And so if we're not fasting unto God, we're, we're doing it wrong. Um, God himself says as much in Zechariah 7.5. You can check it out if you like. We fast for the glory of God. And so take time to pray during times that you would normally eat. Um, that's kind of my conclusion there. But what I would love to do is to um, pray together out loud. Why don't we uh, say the Lord's Prayer? So I think we even have it like on the screen. So we'll wait until it's up there. All right, yeah, let's do it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.